You are listening to Money on the Left, a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative intersectional politics, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. Formerly known as the information superhighway, lately fetishized as the site for an imminent and radically libertarian Web 3.0, and variously figured as source and panacea for all that ails this world, the thing we call the internet, or maybe sometimes more gauchely, the World Wide Web, seems today to be an inextricable and inevitable feature of contemporary political, cultural, and economic life. For all of its centrality, however, most of those who use the internet, myself included, have only fragmentary understanding of the internet as a discrete thing with a knowable history. What though is this thing? What is its full history? And what's our best hope for adjoining its future to our vision for a people-first political economy? I'm Billy Soss, and this month, Scott Ferguson and I speak with Ben Tarnoff, tech worker, writer, and co-founder of Logic Magazine, about his book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, out this past summer with Verso Books. In Internet for the People, Tarnoff provides a comprehensive history and a critical topology of this thing we've come to know, to love, to hate, to swear off, to get on, and to be thoroughly bored of the dang internet. Through the conversation in this episode, and even more thoroughly throughout his book, Tarnoff displaces the haphazard history of the internet that circulates often unquestioned in our foggy collective memories. In helping us to see more clearly how the internet came to be what it is today, in a word, a hyper-privatized hellscape, Tarnoff fashions a vision for the future of the internet as a deprivatized public space for collective flourishing. Thank you to Nanin Kula for the theme tune, to Megan Sass for the graphics, and to Mercedes Olin and Jakob Feinig for the transcript. If you'd like to support the work we do at Money on the Left, please consider subscribing to our Patreon, which is linked to in the show notes. Ben Tarnoff, welcome to Money on the Left. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. So we've asked you to join us today to discuss your recently published book, Internet for the People, the Fight for Our Digital Future, which was released in June 2022 by Verso Books. The bulk of the book tells a synoptic, critical history of the internet, how it came to be, and how it came to be, as you note, so broken. You tell this story in an unexpected way. You not only eschew the fall and redemption narratives of Web3 and blockchain libertarianism, you also proceed with a set of assumptions and values that very much complements the approach to public money politics we adopt at Money on the Left. Specifically, your project refuses to accept privatization or the profit motive as given or inevitable. Instead, you evaluate the history of privatization and profiteering from the perspective of public provisioning, while advocating for heterogeneous public alternatives and cooperative futures. To start us off, how would you characterize most hegemonic histories of the internet today? What do they tend to overlook or get wrong? How does your approach substantially differ And why does this matter for building what you call an internet for the people? It's an interesting question, Scott, because I'm not sure there is a hegemonic story about where the internet comes from, if I had to think about it. I think there are pieces of the story that, you know, let's say that the person on the street would know. I think vaguely folks are familiar with the idea that the internet came out of US military research. I think the more recent history of the internet, the rise of Google, Facebook, 
Uber and so on may be familiar to them depending on how old they are. But in general, a kind of continuous single narrative of the internet's creation, its development, its commercialization. I'm not sure there is a, a hegemonic story about how all those things fit together. There is some good scholarly work on these subjects, which I had drawn in the book, but I really have thought of my intervention as not so much telling people what they get wrong about the story of the internet, but giving them that story for the first time in many cases, or at least the story as a single story, knitting together some of the bits and pieces they may have floating around, kind of half-remembered in their head, but trying to bring it all together into a story with the beginning, middle, and end. Perhaps to clarify what I'm, what I was up to with that uh, initial question, uh, I think that floating, underarticulated narrative or bits of narrative that that are around. Uh, I guess I tend to associate with yes, some sense that the government and the military was involved at the beginning, but then this almost tabula rasa, where then it was a kind of libertine freely associating, you know, extra legal, <laughs> extra political um, kind of utopia. And then, and then Web 2.0 comes along uh, and these major corporations take over and ruin that utopia. Mm. And then that licenses a certain hegemonic project today, which is trying to imagine mm. a Web 3 that is kind of returning to that wild west utopia but now with like private property laws and and um uh, more order and i guess that was the mm -hmm. that's sort of what i had in mind which maybe isn't the 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 totally hegemonic or the full story or not everybody believes that but i guess that's what i was um i was gesturing towards i think there's a generation generational aspect here which is folks who remember the web of the 1990s in some form are likely to hold the types of views that you described, Scott. And I would, I would characterize it as a form of internet nostalgia. I talk a bit about internet nostalgia in the book. And I think it's important to note that nostalgia has been a component of how people have experienced the internet from the very beginning. People have felt nostalgic for the internet of the mid 1980s, the early 1990s, you know, all of us feel nostalgic for some era of the internet. And I, you know, happen to be of the age where, where I do feel nostalgic for the so-called open web of the 1990s of the world of GeoCities and so on. In the book, I try to treat nostalgia fairly because there is something real there. There is a, a accurate perception of the fact that the internet has changed quite dramatically. And I think we could say in, in some ways for the worse, but it also can give us a somewhat distorted view of how the different periods of the internet fit together. For instance, to take the era of the so-called open web, we still have the open web. In fact, the openness of the web is what has facilitated the rise of the so-called platforms. Google, to take an example, is able to sprinkle its 
advertising software throughout the web precisely because the web is open. So the open parts of the open web are what make the closed parts closed, if that makes sense. The open and the closed exist, if you like, in a dialectical relationship with one another. This is a podcast of the left, so I can say words like dialectical. But I, I, I'd encourage us to take that, that view of internet nostalgia, where, again, I don't want to be dismissive or condescending to, to people who have these views, because I kind of have my own private set of uh, longings for a different internet, but they don't always give us a complete picture of how these different things fit together. I should also say that any project to build a better internet, which is you know, partly what motivated my decision to write this book, my commitment to that project, can't go in reverse. There's no way to reverse the privatization of the internet for instance, what we need to do is to come up with a creative reimagining of the internet that takes it forward. We can't simply put the gears in reverse as much as we might like to. I want to sit with that for just a second. And I think that that's a, a very profound and um, maybe, maybe troubling for some listeners' uh, observation or argument uh, that there is no reversal of the privatization of the internet. Maybe you can unpack that for us just a little bit more. Well, what I mean by that is that privatization created the modern internet, and that process was a creative process. It wasn't simply a matter of enclosure. Enclosure is a metaphor that is very popular among Marxists, among those on the left, and has been increasingly applied to digital spaces. And there may be contexts in which it's appropriate, but it would not be accurate to say precisely that the private sector enclosed the internet, which had formerly been a commons which would suggest that all we need to do is to break down the fences erected by those bad uh, landowners, as in rural England, and reclaim the commons for ourselves. That's not what happens. Of course, the internet, as I'm sure we'll discuss, was created by the public sector, specifically by the US military, and its development would not have been possible without billions of dollars of public money. And indeed, the private sector did take over the internet without paying the public sector any compensation. However, it didn't simply inherit it and keep it as it is, because what it was taking over was essentially an academic research network. It was relatively small by today's standards. It was relatively unusable by today's standards, and it had to be quite significantly developed. And crucially, it had to be renovated for the purpose of profit maximization. So privatization is not simply this passive process whereby public assets pass into private hands, and that's that. In the case of the internet, privatization is a creative process. It involves remaking the internet into what we have today. So that's what I mean when I say we can't simply reverse that process because the internet as it exists today is a product of that process. So something I think more imaginative is required. Before we dive into the details of the history of the internet you tell, would you mind for sketching out the sort of structure or topology of the contemporary internet as you do in your book? I think it'd be really helpful, especially for our less tech savvy listeners 
to sketch this out and define some of the key terms you unpack in the book, like the stack, pipes, platforms, um, and things like that? So the stack is a metaphor that would be familiar to folks who are in the world of computer science or software engineering. It's a very common metaphor in the worlds of computing and, and networking. Um, and in particular, it's, it's applied frequently to the internet. Now, my take on the stack is a bit reductive. It's kind of a simplified schema of the stack. And I split the stack into two layers. A stack is, is really just a, a set of layers piled on top of one another, like a house. You can think of the floors in a house. In my simplified schema, I'm talking about two layers, what I call the pipes, which is basically the physical infrastructure of the internet, fiber optic cables, the routers that are required to get a packet of data from one place to another. And here, the companies involved are firms like Verizon, AT&T, internet service providers, as well as companies that operate the deeper networks of the internet. And then when we move up the stack, we get to a different layer, which is inhabited by what people often call the platforms. I take issue with that term, which is a bit of pedantry we can get into later if you like. But this is essentially the application layer of the internet. This is where the apps and the sites are. This is where we experience the internet. And splitting the internet into two helps organize my book. It's literally the two sections of my book. But there's also a chronological story implied here because my book is mostly about not just how the internet was created, but how it was privatized. And privatization begins at the bottom of the stack with the pipes, and then it moves up the stack to the application layer. So there's a spatial metaphor here, which helps us understand how the internet fits together. But there's also a historical aspect here because privatization ascends from the bottom to the top of the stack. Um, so where did it all begin? How did this thing we call the internet get started? Where was the first pipe laid? And what does it look <laughs> like at the outset? Uh, and, and if we could think also about the um, sort of original vision and sort of values and ideals behind uh, the internet as it, at its origins. So to talk about where the internet comes from, we probably have to say very briefly what the internet mm. is. We discussed the stack, which gives us a kind of architectural overview of the internet, but it doesn't give us the ontology, so to speak. It doesn't really give us what is the internet. The internet is fundamentally a language. It's a language that lets different computer networks talk to one another and thus interconnect to form a network of networks. What this means specifically is that the internet is a protocol, now a set of protocols. And a protocol is basically a bunch of rules for how computers should communicate. The very first internet protocol is created by US military researchers in the mid-1970s. And through a series of experiments, they figure out that this internet protocol is capable of stitching together different networks from around the world into a single network of networks. And why this matters, why they're doing it, the military pretext for these experiments is to project computing power from the United States 
into the battlefield. Now, what does that mean more specifically? What it means is that there are large mainframes, million dollar machines, very heavy, very expensive computers located in places like Northern Virginia that are capable of running computationally intensive programs of the kind that might be useful to soldiers who are deployed in places like Vietnam. The vision is that those soldiers who are deployed in places like Vietnam could have a small, less powerful computer in their Jeep, for instance, and through the internet protocol could communicate wirelessly with that mainframe in Northern Virginia and maybe get some output from an application that helps them gain an upper hand on the battlefield. That's the vision for the internet. That's why it gets funded by Pentagon's, the Pentagon's R&D arm, DARPA. Now, that's not actually what the internet is used for. Once they have this protocol, they realize, the Pentagon in particular, realizes that it could be useful for interconnecting various computer networks they have within the Department of Defense. They have various computer networks. It would be useful for various reasons for these networks to be able to communicate with one another. And they use this new internet protocol to do so. So over the course of the 1980s, the internet goes from being a protocol to a place. It actually begins to describe a distinct set of networks that have been interconnected with the internet protocol, which in turn becomes the internet protocols. In the 90s, let's say by the early 1990s, the federal government continues to control the internet, but it's passed from military to civilian hands. By the early 1990s, the National Science Foundation which is a federal agency tasked with supporting basic research, controls the internet. In particular, it controls the main backbone, which is really the main artery of the internet at that time, something called NSFNet. Now, what happens in the early to mid-1990s is that the National Science Foundation takes steps to rapidly and comprehensively privatize these pipes of the internet. Now, it's important to note that privatization was the plan all along. The federal government never had any intention of running the internet indefinitely, but the timetable gets moved up because there's so much demand, unexpected demand by people who want to get online. You know, at the time, the internet is mostly for academic researchers, but things like the rise of the World Wide Web, the rise of graphical web browsing, is making the internet more popular. So demand is soaring, capacity is limited, and the National Science Foundation feels that privatization has to happen sooner rather than later in order to stimulate the type of private investment that would be needed to create capacity to meet that expanded demand. The crucial date is April 1995, at which point the National Science Foundation terminates its backbone, the NSFNet, and the private sector takes over. And crucially, this takeover happens with no compensation, with no conditions, with no enduring public or non-commercial foothold in the new internet. In other words, privatization of the pipes in the 1990s takes a particularly extreme and comprehensive form. And this is really due to extensive industry influence over 
the process. Telecoms have a lot of money to, to make from the new internet, from selling access to it, and they don't want any interference in their profit-making prerogative. Now, there were alternative proposals floating around at the time. I talk about them in the book. There were always ideas of how the internet could be organized differently that would not have seeded uh, the pipes so completely to the private sector. But crucially, no social movement existed to make those ideas active and to overcome industry opposition. So this story is really what I tell in the first part of my book, because privatization was not an event, it was a process. And this is actually just the first part of the process. This is the privatization that begins at the bottom of the stack in the basement of the internet, if you like, with the pipes. The next piece of that story will be privatization moving up the stack. And how would you situate this within the kind of political and ideological climate of the United States in the in the 1980s and 1990s? I mean, I you know I think of familiar stories about the rise of Reaganism and then uh, Clintonism being a kind of neoliberal rearticulation of uh, of the Democratic Party and and, it, and its platform and where so where where what are those broader changes doing to shape um, the privatization as a process of the internet? Well, the ideological backdrop here does matter. You have Clinton on the one hand, uh, whose politics I think will be pretty well known to your listeners, and then Newt Gingrich's Republicans in Congress. Gingrich as some of your listeners may not know, actually had a turn as a kind of poster boy of techno-libertarianism, is interviewed quite favorably in Wired magazine, presents himself as a kind of forward-thinking uh, you know, cyber uh, netizen. <laughs> uh, so many silly words from that era. Um, we have no silly so, words yeah, left. I mean, I, <laughs> All the silly no, words no, are no, gone. No. That's right. <laughs> Nothing that will embarrass us in 20 no, years. we're good. So yeah, ideologically, there's a lot of alignment around the idea that the market is the best mechanism for organizing outcomes. You know that the private sector should lead not just in the realm of the internet, but in all realms of social life, and that certainly helps create the conditions for industry lobbying to be particularly effective and to close down political space for alternatives. To emerge, so certainly there, there. I think there is a confluence of factors that conspire to ensure that privatization takes a particularly extreme form. Yeah, on your telling now, it seems like this was this was almost inevitable given the historical factors operative at the time. You've got Gingrich hanging out with Alvin Toffler, right, uh, and the fall of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall. Like that's. That's we're mm -hmm. not going to put up, um, you know. We're not going to claim this for the public. That's that's communist, and communism is over, right? You get, it's just in the air. Absolutely, and I would add that you know one of the things that makes the fall of the Soviet Union so significant is that it ends the justification, or an important justification for industrial policy through the Pentagon, of the kind that had really lay the foundation for the internet. I mean, the internet is 
created by DARPA and DARPA itself as the Pentagon's R&D arm is created in the aftermath of Sputnik when the US policymaking class has a collective freakout and figures you know they're losing the not just the space race but science and technology uh, is falling behind the Soviets so that demands significant federal investments in science and that rationale disappears after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So for a number of reasons, privatization emerges in a particularly comprehensive form. Um, recently read with some students uh, an essay by David Graeber called Of Flying Cars and the Declining Reign of Profit. So his argument basically being along the lines of, uh, you know, we've sort of stalled out technologically. We don't have flying cars now because, uh, yeah, all of the kind of ambition, innovation, and he calls them poetic technologies are channeled into this sort of bureaucratic state, you know, R&D for military. And that seems to sort of track here but i wonder if there were in those early days and as part of that early history of the internet were there any internal sort of debates discussions uh alternate imaginations about kind of applications for the internet in a sort of non-martial uh direction right that maybe some more uh you know i don't know techno utopian ideas or was it all like sort of like let's 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 outfit our boys on the front lines with the information they need well i'd say utopian sentiments were part of the internet from the very start i mean the the, the thing about the military justification for the internet is like that's how they got the money but a lot of the people who are actually developing the protocols and working on different aspects of the network were not motivated by the military pretext. They may, in fact, have had anti-war uh, sentiments of their own, right? You know, many of them, when you talk to them, they're they're just scientists. They thought it would be a really cool thing to do. It would be really impressive to get these different computer networks from all over the world to start talking to one another. There's a kind of gee whiz aspect of it that's very motivating, which is very familiar if you know scientists. You know, often it's just the kind of sense of wonder that is that is motivating. And certainly, once the internet exists as a place as a network of networks it's primarily used for email you know it's primarily used for mailing lists for people to argue with one another it's a kind of proto social media you know people are getting flamed i don't know if flaming is still a current a current term or if that just become like everyday uh, internet it's become too normalized to even merit its own term 
but yeah, certainly when we think of the kind of creation of online worlds of virtual communities where people socialize with one another, that happens initially through email. Email predates the internet. Email is actually uh, invented on ARPANET, which is an com important computer network created by the Pentagon as a kind of predecessor to the internet and one of the networks that gets linked into this network of networks. But it's important to note that while the initial justification was military because they were getting money from the Pentagon, what it's used for is basically social. The internet emerges as a social medium from the start. And in fact, the social aspect of the internet is what has endured most today. I mean, the internet of 2022 looks nothing like the internet of 1985 in terms of how you would use it, in terms of the applications, in terms of who is using it. But that social quality that it's being used by people to connect with one another has endured. So maybe we can um, circle back to the story of the 90s and privatization and the turn toward um, uh, the profit motive. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about the, the privatization of the pipes and then the rise of, of the platforms uh, in more detail, maybe getting into some of these kind of flagship companies like eBay, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and more. So April 1995 was the date that I had mentioned earlier. And this is, again, the date at which the National Science Foundation terminates its backbone and the private sector essentially takes over the pipes of the internet. Now, 1995 is important for other reasons as well, because it's the year that the dot-com boom launches. So 95 is the year that Netscape has its explosive IPO. Netscape for folks who might be a bit younger, <laughs> imagine not knowing what Netscape is, but in fact, there are people who don't know Netscape. So Netscape was the creator of the first popular graphical web browser, Netscape Navigator. And it has this very exciting IPO in the summer of 1995. 1995 is also the year that Amazon.com opens for business. And in the subsequent years, tens of thousands of startups are founded. You know, billions of dollars flows into internet companies. And all these folks are trying to figure out how do you make money not just from selling people access to the internet, because that's what the companies down the stack are doing. That's what the internet service providers are doing. But how do you make money from what people do once they get online? In other words, how do you monetize not access, but activity? And this turns out to be actually pretty challenging. You know, the dot-com boom is mostly a story of companies struggling to find profitability. Now, one company that does manage to be very profitable from the beginning is eBay, initially called AuctionWeb. And I spent some time looking at eBay in the book because to my mind, it is a really interesting example of the, all of the elements that would go into what we would later think of as the platform are being expressed in a kind of primitive form in eBay in the mid-1990s. So what are those elements? Well, eBay is a middleman. 
it facilitates interactions, in particular between buyers and sellers. It is a sovereign in the sense that it writes the rules for those interactions. It doesn't just sit back and say, you know, you guys connect and uh, figure it out. It has to be intimately involved in how people connect. So there's a governance element that's really important. The third piece is that it's a maker and beneficiary of network effects. The more people who interact on eBay, the more valuable eBay becomes to everyone. So these are the three elements that, to my mind, distinguish eBay and help eBay leverage this social quality of the internet that we've been discussing, which has been a very important part of the internet from the beginning, helps leverage the socialness of the internet and turn it towards commercial ends. So I talk about eBay as the first community market that people are brought together in a type of community, and particularly at the beginning, eBay uses that rhetoric very explicitly, but under the sign of capital for the purpose of commerce. And this innovation, the creation of the community market through those three elements that I described earlier, is very profitable. It's very lucrative. So at a time when dot-coms are taking on a lot of venture funding, but in fact, losing a lot of money, eBay is printing money. Now, as we all know, the dot-com boom collapses in 2000, 2001. And out of the ruins of that era, the so-called platforms, the big firms that still dominate the internet, begin to build these complex computational systems. So post-2001, that's when we really see the rise of Google, the founding of Facebook, the founding of Uber, the rise of Amazon, and so on. This is when these various kind of empires of the modern internet consolidate. And they do so, in my view, by applying the same patterns that eBay had developed as early as the mid-1990s. Not consciously, you know, in most cases, the influence is not direct or conscious, but nonetheless, what we think of as platforms, the ingredients, the building blocks of the modern platform were really discovered by eBay in the mid-1990s. Now, the, the one piece that platforms add to the recipe, if you like, is that they are also manufacturers and monetizers of data. Data is actually the most crucial piece of the puzzle for them. Because if we think about those elements of the community market that I discussed before, what's most important is that this is a space for interactions. Now, what the so-called platforms do, what I call the online malls, ensure that all of these interactions that are happening, that are transpiring within the walls of their enclosure, if you like, are occasions for manufacturing data. And then this data can in turn be monetized in a variety of ways. Now, I think the broad outlines of that story are, are quite familiar to people in the context of online advertising, right? Everything you do on Facebook creates data, which in turn can be used for the purpose of selling ads. But it's important to note that data can be monetized in a variety of different ways. So that's ultimately, in my view, how privatization gets pushed up the stack. They try and they fail. 
with the dot-com period, but then they finally succeed in the aftermath of the dot-com bust with the platforms. So I'm, I'm wondering if if that's not if if the process that we're describing right now is not of the metaphor of enclosure doesn't work to to capture it. Are there any other metaphors that that you could supply us with to kind of help us understand? Is it just that it's a process, or are there, um, yeah? How would you? What alternative to enclosure? Because I think it does sound like a bit of enclosure. Um, but I get what you're saying also that it's it's not like there was a commons that was enclosed. It's more complicated than that. So do we have any um, abstraction to kind of encapsulate that? Well, first a note on clarifying the term enclosure. You know, I, I had just used the word enclosure in my last response, which yeah. you may have noticed. And and by that, I simply mean a structure with four sure. walls, right? I think then there's also the more Marxist use of enclosure, which is, you know, from the enclosure acts and, mm-hmm. and Marx's study of primitive accumulation of, of a commons that is enclosed. Uh, and I think that suggests that there is something within the fence that we could reclaim if we could only tear the fence down. That's what I would object to in the case of the internet. Now, staying on Marx, Marx also has this distinction between the formal and the real subsumption of labor by capital which is the the distinction between the process whereby capital inherits a labor process without reorganizing it. So for instance, let's say a subsistence farmer becomes a wage laborer, but still works on a farm. Now, he's been absorbed into the wage relation he no longer produces for his own consumption. He earns a wage and uses that wage to buy the necessities of life. But the way in which he works has not changed. So this is what Marx would call formal subsumption. Now, let's imagine a little further along, the farm is expanded, it's mechanized, it's industrialized, and the way in which our wage labor works is completely transformed. He's no longer using the same practices that he did as a subsistence farmer. He's now a cog in a much bigger industrialized agriculture machine. This is what Marx would call the real subsumption of labor by capital. So I use that distinction to talk about the internet in the sense that In 1995, when the private sector takes over the pipes, the private sector, if you like, inherits a network, a network of networks that has not been organized around the principle of profit maximization. It's something that was created by the US government that was developed mostly by research scientists for their own use. So at that point, you have formal subsumption. But what has to occur in the subsequent years and decades is the very difficult process of real subsumption, which is this network of networks, this research network built by scientists has to be remodeled, reorganized for the purpose of profit maximization. And this is ultimately what I think you know, the platforms achieve. This is their legacy, is managing to, to unlock 
the profit potential of the internet by reorganizing it. I also think your your um, metaphor of the mall, right, which I think you borrow from somebody else um, in the book, but the, this trope of um, uh, imagining the platforms as online malls, it's it's absurd to imagine a mall <laughs> as an as an enclosure in the in the historical sense of you know <laughs> of English law, right? Like the, there was no there was no there was no there's no pre pre mall <laughs> that then a, a private corporation takes over. So um, yeah, I think I think that's one thing to hold on to here. Well, uh, on that note, I wonder if there was any internal struggle at the NSF that you were able to to uncover or discover about just saying, okay, here. <laughs> take this thing that we've built uh and, and go crazy um i know that you know we, we talked about this sort of the the spirit of the times being like distinctly and acutely neoliberal um but has was there any you know um op- opposing viewpoints from the nsf that you could discover to what actually happened not within the nsf but there was an alternative proposal that i discussed in the book that uh was embodied in a in a senate bill put forward by senator daniel Inoue of Hawaii, which would have created what uh, advocacy groups at the time called a public lane on the information superhighway, information superhighway being the preferred metaphor at the time for the internet. And this bill would have done a number of things, such as uh, forcing telecoms to reserve up to 20% of their network capacity for non-commercial uses, which would have been granted specifically to nonprofit organizations like libraries. Broadly, Inoue's bill and the organization around it that was pushing for it look to the legacy of public media for inspiration. You know, if radio and television could have spectrum set aside for public non-commercial uses, why can't we do the same with the internet? Now, of course, Public media has always been very weak in the United States compared to other advanced capitalist countries. But nonetheless, that was an important piece of inspiration. Now, this bill, don't have to tell you, uh, doesn't get passed and this idea doesn't go anywhere. But nonetheless, there were alternative proposals at the time. And that's something that you know, I try to emphasize in the book. It wasn't inevitable the way it went, but it was a question of the, the balance of forces. And there simply was not a social movement at the time that would have politicized this issue and made it legible to masses of people. I mean, the internet is still fairly obscure at the time. So it it would have been hard to have built a movement around the internet. But nonetheless, this this is how privatization takes such an extreme form is because not not the absence of alternative ideas, but the absence of enough social power to make those ideas active in the face of the opposition of the capitalist class.
So now that we have a stronger sense of how the internet was publicly provisioned and then multiply privatized in a processual way, it seems like we're pretty well posed to discuss some of the more exciting democratic and public alternatives you promote in your book. But before we get into some of those those details, um, I want to I want to make uh, our, our our listeners aware of the fact that you importantly couch you, what you are calling an internet for the people within broader political struggles that that it's it's part of the political struggle for the provisioning of food and housing and healthcare and and, and public financing can you talk a little bit about that larger framing it's not you don't just do you don't just offer a a narrow politics of of the inter- internet you you have a, a a much more nested sense of where where and how this this uh, fits into the broader political order today. Yeah, I tried not to do too much of that in the book because I wanted to try to keep the the lens as narrowly uh, focused on the internet as possible. But inevitably, you know, you have to <laughs> other things. The problem with writing about the internet is that the internet is entangled with everything, so other things start to creep in. I think I also want to give a sense of what's at stake. You know, discussions about the internet, they're often quite dry, they're often quite technical. I wanted to try to make the point that what's at stake is the possibility of democracy without putting it too grandly. And, you know, we live in a profoundly undemocratic society. And what I mean by democracy, and this is a definition that I go into in the book, is the ability for people to rule themselves. For people to rule themselves, they need to have certain things available to them. In other words, as I say in the book, freedom isn't free. If we want to lead self-determined lives, we need access to resources that enable us to do so. You can't rule yourself. You can't lead a self-determined life if you're hungry, if you don't have a roof over your head, if you're bankrupt for medical bills. Similarly, the internet has become an indispensable precondition of participation in social, economic, cultural, and civic life. We saw this in the early days of the COVID pandemic. People needed to get online to apply for unemployment insurance. They needed to work from home. Their kids needed to attend school from home. And that helps bring into view the stakes of the social crisis around connectivity in the United States. The United States has absolutely abysmal broadband. We pay, on average, higher monthly costs in the United States for broadband than our equivalents in Asia or Europe. We rank 14th in connection speeds below Hungary and Thailand. And most astonishingly, in 2018, Microsoft researchers researchers determined that 162 million Americans do not access the internet broadband speeds, which is about half the country. So we could talk about these statistics in the dry language of the digital divide and so on. But I I think we need to elevate our rhetoric, talk about democracy. If if people don't have access to the resources they need to lead self-determined life, they can't exercise self-rule. Now, the ability to exercise self-rule at at a personal level is 
intimately bound up with the ability to exercise self-rule collectively. In other words, the reason that people don't have access to the resources they need to lead self-determined lives is because there are certain choices, political choices that have been made about how those resources are distributed. And those are choices that those people don't have an opportunity to participate in. So this is the other, to my mind, essential ingredient of a democratic society is giving people not just the resources they need to lead self-determined lives, but the opportunity to participate in the decisions that most affect them. And those are the guiding principles for my project of how to create a more democratic internet. And it has implications, different implications, we should say, at different parts of the stack. It means something different at the pipes than at the platforms. But nonetheless, these are the principles that I think can guide us, not just in building a more democratic internet, but in building a more democratic society. So let's talk about some of the proposals that you engage with in the book um, for doing just that, for creating and sort of recovering the internet as a, a channel technology with a series of pipes and platforms that we can use to uh, advance democracy. Um, these, these proposals include but aren't limited to creating public and cooperatively owned networks on the model of ongoing experiments in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and rural South Dakota. Um Supporting decentralized open source models of social networking, such as the Mastodon project, and using public libraries and post offices, I like this one, as local administrative hubs for social networking and journalism across the United States. Can you take us on a brief tour through these alternate horizons uh, for the internet and perhaps tell our listeners how we might, or how they might, and how we might uh, get involved with such efforts? So my term for the political project that I think we need to build a better internet is deprivatization. And deprivatization aims at creating an internet where people and not profit rule. That's the North Star. What does that mean in practice? It means developing models of public and cooperative ownership that can shrink the space of the market, that can diminish the power of the profit motive, and that can encode practices and the principles of democratic control. In the book, I look at a number of experiments that are, in my view, putting those ideas into practice that represent, even if it's in a small scale, deprivatization in action. One example, which you indicated, is the community network. Community network is a publicly or cooperatively owned broadband network could be, for instance, owned by a municipality or could be owned by the members themselves. There are more than 900 communities in the United States that are currently served by community networks. And these networks tend to provide better service at lower cost than their corporate counterparts because they don't exist to enrich shareholders with stock buybacks and dividends like the big firms like Verizon. They're able to prioritize social goals like universal connectivity. And crucially, and this is the piece that I find most promising, they are able to give users an opportunity to participate in decisions around how infrastructure is developed and deployed. So I see community networks as really the main protagonist in deprivatizing the pipes of the internet. 
not the only one, because we can't simply have a series of local networks. That's not what the internet is. The, the internet is composed of networks at, at various scales. But nonetheless, community networks, I think, are, are the most promising form that deprivatization can take at that layer of the internet. Now, when we move up the stack to the realm of the so-called platforms, the situation becomes more complex. The path to deprivatization here is less linear because we're immediately uh, encountering creatures of, a, of greater complexity and greater diversity. Facebook, and Uber, and Amazon, these are creatures of much greater technical sophistication than ISPs down the stack. And they're more different from one another than ISPs are from one another. So inevitably, how we deprivatize these different sectors uh, will depend a lot on what we're actually talking about. As a result, the experiments are somewhat less mature. As you mentioned, I uh, allude to experiments that are ongoing among a number of different communities, such as the decentralized web community and projects like Mastodon, which aim to create decentralized social media networks, which in turn could enable something like a cooperatively owned and cooperatively moderated social media site, which interconnects freely with other sites. There's also the platform cooperativism community. And this is a group of people who are interested in trying to create worker-owned and operated app-based services. So what would a cooperative alternative to Uber look like, for instance? Now, these are experiments that are quite limited, we have to say. I think we have to acknowledge their limitations and also acknowledge that they are in most cases, modeled on corporate counterparts. If you use something like Mastodon, it looks a lot like Twitter. So inevitably, these are the first draft of what a deprivatized application layer might look like. To go further, I think we're going to need a lot more experiments. And in particular, we're going to need public investment to create spaces of imagination where ordinary people can come in, get connected to the resources and the expertise they need to build the online services that are capable of meeting their needs. And this latter part about imagination is where I place most of my faith in the book. I know it can sound a bit wishy-washy and a bit open-ended, but I think if we think of imagination as something that is not just something that kind of solitary genius does alone in their room, but rather a collective embodied process of experimentation that necessarily requires resources and investment, I think we can get a little bit closer to creating the type of process that will eventually result in a deprivatized internet. So to circle back to something you uh, said before, um, this this definition of of platforms right so you know we've been using it in this conversation just kind of heuristically and normatively uh, but you also you also noted that you had a critique of a uh, platform as a as a a concept as a term and the way that it kind of frames our understanding of of the world i want to give you an opportunity to to flesh that out yeah you'll notice i've been 
doing annoying things like saying so-called platforms or what, you know, I'm trying to always put quote marks around platforms. I, I should say, you know, in general, the, the terms and the metaphors that we use to talk about technology, we have mostly inherited from the tech firms themselves. And that's a problem because, you know, we're, we're kind of operating on enemy territory, if you like. Platform, I think, is a good example of a metaphor that does a lot of strategic work for the firms themselves. It suggests neutrality, it suggests openness, it suggests a certain kind of levelness, and they have an interest in presenting themselves this way, you know, in, in presenting themselves as not, in fact, intimately involved in organizing and governing our online life, but rather being a kind of neutral receptacle for it. So rather than platform, I use the term online mall. Because to my mind, the best way to understand the systems that these firms create is that they operate like the online equivalents of shopping malls. They are spaces of commerce that incorporate an aspect of a public square. They're spaces where all sorts of different interactions can transpire. Interactions between buyers and sellers, social interactions if you're an American teenager, in the suburbs, you probably spend a lot of your social life in a shopping mall. Similarly, online malls can be quite social spaces. But whatever these interactions are, they are all organized around the manufacture and monetization of data, which we discussed earlier. But data is the essential ingredient and motivating purpose of the online mall. So moving it from the spatial metaphor of kind of train platform, let's say, a horizontal line into a cube, into something that you're trapped inside of and you can't get out of. I think that's, that's much closer to the experience that we have of these computational systems. There's not even a Cinnabon. Uh, <laughs> what a crummy deal. Um, Going along these lines, I think that there were there was there were some other um, phrases and words and concepts that we use that I would like to maybe um, plumb just a bit more. And one is, uh, you know, I think we at Money on the Left have been committed to, or we're 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 committed to basically, I think everything that you're talking about doing, and specifically around, uh, well, imagination, right? Uh, advocacy for expanding our kind of horizons, and not just on the kind of individual um, in a long office talking about. Uh, these things sort of in, a, in an academic way, um, but collective imagination and building in, in, in common with each other. Um, there, we don't have what it seems like the, the platforms, the corporations, the Ebays, Googles, Netflixes have, which is the kind of um, uh, the profit motive, right? Uh, what is the what is the can we think of do we can we point to um anything i think that this is something that we come up against it's like okay well you know in terms of the left left politics left organization there's a dearth of money right in terms of just piles of money just laying around to like you know fund the movement whereas on the right there are lots of more piles of money for for more uh you know for reasons of like the profit motive and the people that have that money are engaged in the sort of business and and uh, market activity that that leads to profit. Um, 
I was thinking like like the cooperative motive, the social motive, the poetic motive. I don't know if there's like can we devise or think about or just riff and imagine collectively, we three right now, um, what that motive could be and how could it be sufficient enough to to motivate, you know, us, our listeners, people, um, to say, okay, yeah, you know, I have all these bills that I got to pay, but um, what's more important is building a, a collective, new, imaginative, cooperative internet. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna issue this profit motive. I'm gonna go for the, the new internet motive. Let's dream. <laughs> well, I think you have to politicize people's relationship to technology. I think you have to help clarify that there are political stakes to these different technical artifacts that surround their lives. And I actually think that conversation has gotten a lot easier in the last few years because broadly that awareness is, is actually there. Now it gets politicized in different directions, you know, more successfully often by the right than the left. But the idea that Facebook is not some neutral arbiter, some kind of neutral communications platform that you just throw ideas onto, but is actively involved in shaping and organizing our online lives with consequences that can be socially destructive. That's an idea with very broad currency. It's it's nearly common sense. So that creates an opening. I think from there, you have to make people feel as if their well-being and, and even their sense of themselves is wrapped up with this project. You know, I think that's that's how you get people to participate in any project of social transformation, whether it's joining a union, whether it's joining a political organization, whatever kind of political work you're asking them to do, I think they they need to feel as if their sense of self and their kind of material interests are bound up in that project. Now, I don't mean to suggest that we should define interests in a in a simplified way, because I think people often will also have an interest in living in a fairer, more solidaristic world. You know, interest does not simply have to mean the kind of rational actor definition of interest. In fact, people have a lot of complex and contradictory interests, and it's it's the work of organizers to try to give certain interests greater prominence. You know, to, to interests are, let's say, another terrain of class struggle. But I think we can make a distinction between a moral as opposed to a material view of how change happens, which is not to say that morality isn't useful or justified. You know, there's certainly some polemic in my book that, that draws on morality. Morality can be useful in organizing projects, of course. A sense of outrage can be very useful, but morality doesn't change the world. I think this is an observation that I would draw from the work of Marx. You know, Marx uses a lot of moral language. He can be a great moralist, but he recognizes that moral exhortation is not a force for social transformation. 
it can be a, a useful agitating tactic. But at the end of the day, in order to bring masses of people into some kind of transformative project, you need to make them feel, you need to make them see as if their material interests are served by that project, however you are defining those interests. Maybe by helping them to sharing our experiences of how we came to see those things as uh, important to our material interests as well. Right. And, and, you know, the process of social transformation, I, I think, involves and entails self-transformation. Part of making the case to somebody about why they should join the union is appealing to one set of interests over another. They have an interest in not getting fired. You know, there's a risk involved. They may have an interest in maintaining certain hierarchies in the workplace that benefit them, but then they have other interests as well. You know, in the context of a union campaign, an interest may be in job security, in more clarity around job progression, and also, you know, certain solidaristic interests, interests in being a good coworker, in taking care of one another. You know, so inevitably this conversation about which interests should be given prominence and which interests should be downplayed or de-emphasize involve a process of personal transformation as well. To close us out, I was wondering if you could put this book in the context of a lot of the other work that you do. So you're an accomplished author, you've published, you've published essays, you've published many, many books. Um, and then you're also co-founder and writer at Logic Magazine. Can you give us a, a breezy tour through <laughs> through your your broader horizon of work and where this fits in? Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to make it breezy uh, or I, or I'm labored, who, just belabored or labored. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could certainly make it labored. That won't be hard okay. at all. Uh, I I'm someone who works in the tech industry. I'm someone who thinks about the relationship between technology and society. And I think most of my writing and editing and intellectual projects flow from that concern. Um, but I'm also someone who's getting bored of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm increasingly I get, you know, technology is such a useful way for thinking about power but then it's easy to get stuck in different uh, kind of threads of it. You know, I find that I have to keep kind of recentering myself and trying to figure out what am I really interested in? Because I don't want to become just an expert on the internet. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that I think my interest in the internet is an expression of my interest in how power is organized. In society. I remember doing an event with the great Astra Taylor once, and Astra said something to the effect of, I'm not interested in technology, I'm interested in power. But the reality is that if you care about power today, you have to care about technology. And I don't think that's entirely accurate for me because I do really love technical details and technical complexity. But at the end of the day, you know, as a as a writer and editor, 
what is most important to me is the stakes, the consequences, you know, who's going to be affected, whose lives will be changed through the use of these technologies. And I think that's kind of what, what guides me rather than a more specific interest in this or that technology. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for coming, Ben Tarnoff. Uh, everybody should go out, get your book. Uh, highly recommend it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I was just thinking. I was. You reminded me of uh, the. Is it when you said it was? You were bored of the internet uh, of the La Tigre song. Get off the internet. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah, there was that was pretty live in the. Um, you know, as a kind of like politics, uh, uh, sort of kind of left politics at, at the turn of the, the the century. The idea of getting off the internet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We've lost. We that, have, but where do you? I mean, where like. Because when yeah. you said bored, where do you go? When you said you were bored of it. I thought that could go a couple of ways, and I feel like I think a lot of us are bored with it, and and or or yeah. angry at it, or frustrated, or sort of befuddled by it, but have feel like we have no choice but to participate and stay on the internet. Um, so, like a little bonus question here, maybe if you have anything to say about the get off the internet politics. It's something I struggle with because I wrote a book about the internet because I love the internet. I vividly remember the first time I used the internet in 1994. So I was in the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, which is in Portland, Oregon, right on the river. It's a lovely museum. And I would have been maybe nine years old. I was wandering around this museum with my mom and I was looking for astronaut stuff you know, rockets, space shuttles, astronaut ice cream. And we stumble across a room full of computers, the computer lab. And these are, you know, enormous by our standards computers. These are like big towers, huge CRT monitors. And I sit down at one of them and we're informed that these are connected to something called the internet, which I had not heard of. And I must have brought up Yahoo or you know, whatever was available at the time for finding websites on the internet, this being, of course, before the rise of the the modern search engine, and start looking up information about Star Trek, you know, start learning about precisely how many millimeters the width of the uh, Starship Enterprise's wings are, you know, just kind of information about hulls and phasers and how many torpedoes are loaded, all sorts of nerdy stuff that I felt I needed to know. And I was just exhilarated. I mean, there was so much information about Star Trek on the web in 1994, as you can imagine. I think that's all there was actually. So that <laughs> could have been. Yeah, it was probably most most mostly Star Trek information. And I fell in love with the internet and you know, kind of spent much of my childhood online, you know, in online communities. 
so if I didn't love the internet, I couldn't write a book about it. But it's something I struggle with because, you know, increasingly the rest of the world has caught up to where I was as a kid. And I don't think it's been a constructive development. It was seen as somewhat antisocial, even pathological, although my parents permitted it, for me to just spend all my time on the internet all day. And now this is kind of what we all do anyway, because we have it with us in our pocket and because it mediates so much of our lives, lives that in, formerly had many offline components have been kind of absorbed into the internet. So it is something I, I wonder about and struggle with. I, I try to avoid taking a moralizing tone because I remember how life-giving the internet was to me as an isolated kid. You know, that, that was actually the world where I felt most comfortable. And I think there's still a lot of, a lot of kids who, who feel that way. So I wouldn't want to take that away from them. But is something lost when the offline world has become so kind of emaciated, is so, so emptied out that, you know, we can't even get offline? I don't know. But now, now I also listen to myself and I sound like I'm pushing 40. You know, maybe I don't have the right perspective on this anymore.